Well, have a seat. And howdy. Man. Man. Good weekend. Good weekend. Nice to walk away with a victory. Um, wow. Come on. Come on. I'm not satisfied with the victory. All right, fair enough. Uh, it's been a great weekend. I hope you've had a great week. I hope you've had, worked through your finals very, very well. Uh, not finals, sorry, midterms, and you are ready for your finals. You're like, I'm a done. Kevin knows something I don't. Uh, yeah, you worked through your midterms well. Um, I, I'm going to just say um, we are so blessed by uh, the worship team that leads us here. And, uh, and so if you see those guys, just thank them. They work so hard. Yeah, give them a hand. They work so hard to lead us in the presence of God, and I'm so thankful for them. Hey, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 7 this morning, Romans chapter 7. And uh, so if you have a Bible or an app on your phone, uh, this is a safe place to pull out your phone and look at your Bible app. Um, along those lines, uh, we actually have a version devotional series. We have a version devotional series that we would love for you guys to download and partner with us on. Um, our goal with that is actually to get uh, Romans into you, not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. And so if you go to your Bible app and you uh, type in living free and look for uh, that, that uh, graphic, you can actually go along on the Bible app and be, do devotional along with us, study Romans throughout the week, not just something that you hear on Sundays. That's really, really helpful along the way. So here we go. Romans chapter 7. Let me read for us. And we are covering the entire chapter, which no sermon I've ever heard has ever attempted to do that. So we're going to go where no one has gone before, people. Romans chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 1. Let me read some for us, and then we'll pray. We'll jump in. It says this. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, I don't know why I'm dying in this illustration. Uh, but if her husband dies, uh, she is free from the law. Uh, if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, here's the point. You have also died to the law according to the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way by the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Jump over to verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see the members in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And I thank you that your word speaks honestly about the human condition. 
That there is a part within us that desires to actually serve you, God, to actually live a life in line with you. But there's another part of us, another very real part of us that actually desires to do what's wrong. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open up your word this morning, as we dig more deeply into your word, that we would see the very real war within. And, God, that you would give us um, wisdom and how to navigate that battle well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, on September 2nd, 1945, it marked the end of World War II. And it was the surrender of of all the major forces, Japanese and all the major forces that had aligned against the the Allied powers. And so they had actually uh, surrendered their weapons in September 2nd, 1945. But there was another person... uh, who didn't believe that the war had actually ended. Meet a Japanese soldier named Hiru um, Onoda. This soldier kept fighting World War II for 29 years after it ended. He did not lay down his weapons until March 9th, 1974. So from 1945 until 1974, this man continued to wage a one-man war against as it turned out, the Philippines. Onetta was born in uh, March 19th of 1922 in the village of, uh, I'm probably going to say this wrong, my Japanese is horrible, um, uh, but I'm not even going to try. He was born in a village, and he says this of himself. I think this is amazing. Um, I was always defiant and stubborn in everything that I did. That is his own self-reflection. I was always defiant and stubborn in everything that I did, including surrendering. And... Uh, And so it came about that that they started hearing that the war had ended. In fact, there were leaflets being dropped on these islands in the South Pacific and in the Philippines that would indicate that the war was over. But he believed, because of his training, that this was just propaganda, getting him to lay down his arms. And so he wouldn't believe it. So he and two other uh, of his compatriots decided to continue to fight the war. And so they turned away from being, uh, they no longer had communication with the outside. And so they just continued to wage this war. War for the next 20, 27 years until his last compatriot died in 1972. And then Inoda was found himself to be alone waging a one man war against the Philippine government. At this point, uh, he refused to lay down his weapons. And he really became a, a person of lore because he continued to fight battles even though the war had ended. And so what would he do? Well, he would blow up rice factories, he would steal rice from people, and he continued to wage this war for the next 29 years of his life. And, and, I'm, and I look at this picture of this individual, and I say, that is the Christian life. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we feel like we are a person at war with ourselves. See, we've been looking at uh, the, the book of Romans, and the book of Romans is amazing at laying out the truths of the gospel, that you are, we are dead in sin, as it says. All of us are under sin, but we have been justified by Christ Jesus. It's just as if you've never sinned. You've been brought into the right relationship with God. You are completely forgiven. But we've been talking the past couple of weeks of not merely about the reality of our sin, that we, are, we deserve condemnation, 
But the next part that we have been justified by faith, but we've been looking the past couple weeks at the reality of sanctification, that there is still a very real war going on inside of our hearts. And it feels like there's someone that hasn't gotten the memo yet that still realizes, although we may have believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, the reality is the Christian life is a lot harder than we would ever imagine. And I'll tell you this, the Christian life, the best picture that you can describe it in, is that of a, of a world at war. There's an external war, and our war isn't against flesh and blood, it's, it's a spiritual war. That there is a, there's a spiritual force, a spiritual force that's, that's corrupted the minds of the world so that they don't understand the truth of the gospel. And so there's a reality of a spiritual war out there, but there's also an internal war. The Christian, more than anyone else, should be dissatisfied with their Christian life because we are not all who we want to fully be. And if you've ever felt like that, the Christian life should have been a lot easier. I thought I'd be a lot further along. I'll tell you what, you're in good company because the Apostle Paul that wrote this letter, who helped plant churches all around the Mediterranean region, says the same thing. He says, the good I want to do, I don't do. And the things I hate about myself, those things I continue to do. Paul himself realizes that the Christian life really is a battle within and what I want to give us in this passage, I want to give us a couple things that are going to help us out. One is to clarify our new relationship that we have. Secondly, I'm going to ch- describe what our new struggle is, and Paul really lays it out. And then I'm going to tell you the solution that he actually offers at the end of this passage, that there's actually one hope. And I'm going to lay that out, and next week, we're going to talk more specifically about how we wage that war with the new power of the Spirit. And so some of you at the end of the sermon are going to be like, what about the Holy Spirit? Fear not, we will talk about the Holy Spirit next week, but we're going to talk about the internal struggle and the one solution this week. So let's jump into Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 at the start. And he's saying this, we have a new relationship. The first thing that we have as Christians, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, is you actually have a new relationship. And that is not merely a new relationship with God. We actually have a new relationship, he'll say, to the law, the Old Testament law. And he gives an illustration, an example of marriage. And he says this of marriage, do you not know, brothers, because I'm speaking of a, in human terms, That if a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if the husband dies, she is released from that marriage. So you don't have to stay married once your spouse dies. And that that should be, uh, I don't don't know, just a clear reality. Like once someone's spouse dies, you can marry another. And she says, if you start having that relationship with someone else before your spouse has passed away, we have a word for that. And Paul uses that word. It's called adultery. It's like, we don't do that. And he says, I want to draw a comparison. I want to draw a comparison to this. That when you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are no longer under the law when it comes to salvation. You are no longer bound to the Old Testament law. So you may be asking yourself, Kevin, why can we eat shellfish? Why can I, not, uh, why can I wear like mixed cloth? Like what, why do these Old Testament laws not apply to me? And the reason is this, is because we believe in Jesus, that he died in our place for our sins. So we don't have to follow the Old Testament rules and regulation. Jesus has brought us into an entirely new relationship. 
And this is key. Not because you're worried about the clothing that you're going to wear. You're like, can I wear polyester? Yeah, safe place. You can wear polyester. I don't know. Safe place. But I think a lot of us, when it comes to the Old Testament law, we wonder, how does it apply? Like, what am I supposed to do? And will God be more pleased with me if I actually obey all the right things more? Am I still trying to earn my salvation with God? Many years ago, in the 60s, there's an author named uh, S. Lewis Johnson. He wrote an, an article called The Paralysis of Legalism, meaning that you're going to try to earn a right relationship with God through obeying the right rules. And he says this, One of the most serious problems facing the Orthodox Church today is the problem of legalism. One of the most serious problems facing the church in Paul's day was the problem of legalism. And every day it's the same. Legalism, meaning trying to earn your way into God's favor, wrenches the joy of the Lord from the Christian believer. And with that joy of the Lord goes the power for vital worship and vibrant servants. Nothing is left but cramped, somber, dull, and listless profession. He's saying, look, if you just try to obey rules to earn God's favor, what it's going to rob from you is joy and love and vitality in your Christian life. We don't serve God because of the rules. He's saying if you, if you try to do that, you're just going to lose all joy. He says nothing is left but cramped, somber, dull, listless profession. The truth is betrayed, and the glorious name of the Lord Jesus of the Lord becomes a synonym for a gloomy killjoy. The Christian under law is a miserable parody of the real thing. See, if we try to earn God's favor by following the Mosaic law, just saying, I'm going to white-knuckle my way into obedience, he says, look, you're never going to be happy. You're never going to experience the joy that comes in the right relationship with Christ. And he goes on to say, we are in a new relationship with Christ. He says, likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another him. He's like, you were once under the law and we were condemned under the law, but now we have a new relationship, a relationship with Christ. And so our relationship with God is not based on rules and obedience. It's based on a person. It's based on an intimate relationship with the person of Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members, bearing the fruit to death. We're going to talk more about that in the rest of the section. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit and on the old way of the written code. These two verses, verse 5 and 6, summarize chapter 7 in verse 5 and chapter 8 in verse 6. Most theologians, as they study these two passages, verse 5 is a great summary of chapter 7 of Romans, and verse 6 is a great summary of chapter 8 of Romans. And he says, we don't serve by the letter of the law, we serve in the empowerment of the Spirit. We're going to talk more about the Spirit in a, next week, once again, like I told you, but we are really in a new relationship with Christ. And that new relationship that we have in Jesus Christ is giving us an entirely new way of interacting with one another and interacting with God. But here's the truth. The Christian doesn't remove all of the Old Testament laws in terms of, I no longer need to do what's right. Our relationship, the Christian relationship with the Old Testament law is this. It's one that reveals struggle. So how does a Christian today 
look at the Old Testament law. Well, we don't follow the Old Testament law so that we might be saved from, um, saved from our sins. We don't follow the rules to be saved from our sins. We follow Jesus Christ. But there are Old Testament principles that are repeated in the New Testament under the law of Christ. Those we actually do follow. In fact, all of the Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So those we actually do follow. To love the Lord our God, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to not covet. In fact, that's going to be the issue that Paul addresses. But there's a big question that, I, that, that I'm just going to in, uh, welcome you into a little debate that has happened for the past 2,000 years. And the question is this. When Paul talks about his struggle with the Mosaic Law, is he talking about himself as an unbeliever Or as a believer? Should the Christian struggle like Paul describes? Or is he describing himself before he was actually a believer? And I'm going to give you a bunch of reasons. Here's your theology lesson for the day. This is going to be very exciting. Is Paul a believer or an unbeliever? All right, here's what theologians do. They sit around and they ask deep questions. And then they come up with verb answers. You ready for these answers? It's going to change your life. This will be so fun at your next party. Okay? Just bust these out. So is he talking about himself, or is he talking about a pre-conversion moment? Well, here's some reasons why you actually think he's talking about his current experience as a Christian. First is this, that there's first-person singular words used. He uses the word I throughout this entire section. I, 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 I. And so he's, he's actually identifying with the struggle. He's not saying some people struggle. He's identifying it. This could be a rhetorical device, but it's actually a contextual clue that it's actually his current struggle. The second part is this, there's a dramatic shift in, in verbs. In verses 7 through 13, it's all in the past. In verses 14 through 25, he's talking about a present struggle. And so he uses the past tense, talking about things, he, his old struggle with the law. And in 14 through 25, he actually talks about his current struggle with the law. And so that's another indication that it's likely a, a current context of a believer. The third reason is this, the flow of Romans. The flow of the book of Romans is actually incredible of how it's put together. When it talks in the first three chapters of the condemnation we all have under sin, that justification is declared in chapters 3 through 5, and then in verses, or chapter 6 through 8, he actually moves to talk about the process of sanctification, how God continues to work in the life of a believer. And so there's some good indication that Paul isn't reverting back to a topic he already talked about, but he's actually moving forward in his argument. That you were dead in sin, you were alive through Christ, and now here's how the new life of a believer works out. So it's likely that he's talking about the life of a believer. Also, there's some pretty bold statements that he uses that we're going to look at. He says, I sincerely want to do good. Well, a non-believer sincerely doesn't want to follow the will of God. A non-believer does not. He says, I agree with the law and confess it is good. So he has this, these deep words of like, I believe that the law of God is actually good. There's a joyful concern with um, the law of God in the inner man. So there's an aliveness internally that, that Paul has. An unbeliever doesn't have the, the, the internal um, life that a believer has to love the things of God. And this is someone who desperately wants to serve God. So it's not just an immature believer. I would actually even make the argument that Paul is describing his experience as a mature believer trying to follow God. So do I think this is an unbeliever or a believer? I actually think it's the description of the real struggle of a believer. So the question becomes, okay, 
Kevin. If this is actually what a believer should look like, what, what does the struggle look like for a believer to follow Christ? Well, there's three pieces from this that I want to give you guys. I'm going to read the passages and give you the pieces. It says this, What shall we say then? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was not to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, sin reveals something in me. The first thing that the law does is it actually reveals sin. It doesn't cause sin, it just shows what's actually there. A great description would be like this, an x-ray machine. So if you feel like your arm is severely hurt, maybe you're playing a football game or jumping off a roof, and you're like, ow, why does my arm hurt so bad? You would then go to a doctor, and the doctor would bring you to a machine, and they would take an x-ray of the bone. And if it's broken, you would not yell at the doctor, what did you do to my arm? And then you'd maybe yell, why isn't this helping? You'd be like, no, 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 that's a diagnostic tool. <laughs> It doesn't fix it. It just shows you what's wrong with your bone. And it doesn't even show what's wrong with your mind. Why were you jumping off the roof? Like, it just shows you what's wrong with your bone. It's a diagnostic tool. He says, in one level, the law is a diagnostic tool. It shows you what's wrong with you. It says, I wouldn't have known what coveting was until all of a sudden the Bible says don't covet. And then I realized, well, what does covet mean, Kevin? It's to want what's not yours. That's all coveting is. Hey, don't, don't want what's not yours. I don't, I don't know that I'm capable of that. And he says, yeah, that's the problem. We all do that. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And the very commandment that promised to bring life to me brought me death for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy And the commandment is good and holy and righteous and good. So I don't have a problem with the law. He says, what the law actually did is it revealed the problems within me. The law is the purpose of the law. One major purpose is to reveal sin within. And we've all done this. As soon as the law comes, that for some reason incites a rebellion against the law. I brought you tons of examples. And you can go on the internet and search out your own. Here's some examples. This is caution, public notice, no swimming. And so a guy in a snorkeling suit says, I think I know better. This one says, no climbing on the artwork, and we have children climbing on the artwork. This one says, uh, do not take pine cones. And so he is smuggling pine cones out of the play of that. Uh, do not <laughs> exit this side only. <laughs> and he's going to walk out the other one just because you said no. This one's awesome. Uh, no horseplay in the lab. <laughs> I will show you. Uh, do not cross the yellow line. <laughs> oh, man. And he's just standing there. And this one is actually my favorite. No dogs, bicycles, no swimming. No dogs, no bicycles, no swimming. And this little girl just walking up there like, what? 
What's interesting in each one of those moments is you can all pick your own moments of like when it says no swimming, no jumping, don't throw rocks, and you're just like, I'm just going to do it because it told me not to. Like there's something within you that rebels against that. And so there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is fine saying, hey, don't covet. Care for one another. Love your wife. Love God. Love people. Like, like care for other people. And you're just like, I don't know that I want to do that. And, and, and the law, for some reason, incites something within. And so that's one of the purposes. It reveals the sin within all of us. But there's a second purpose of the law, and it's this. The law actually brings us to despair, to self-sanctification. Here's the way Paul says it. Did that which was good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing in me, producing death in me through what was good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might come sin beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That confession is so indicting and so helpful. He says, when I see the law of God, I see a standard that I would, I would like to apply to my life. Like, I would like to love people well and care for other people. I, I actually agree with those rules. And it's good. But there's this other thing within me that just doesn't want to obey. That just hates it. And he goes, and I find myself, I know the law is spiritual, verse 14, but I'm under the flesh. Meaning? The Christian believes that there's, the, there's at least a biparte part of the human. There's the flesh, which is, uh, includes the body, but it's this desire to do what's wrong. It's this internal desire. No one has to teach you to yell at your brother or hit your sister. Like, no one has to teach you that. I've got four kids, and at no point did we ever teach them, hey, when your sister takes your toy, you just rear back and slap them. Like, we didn't have to teach them that, yet they do it instinctively. And when you tell them, hey, you know what, you hurt people, and they won't want to play with you when you hit them, you're like, I I hear you, but they took my toy. (laughs) And so the next time comes around, and they slap them again, you're just like, you realize, like, nothing's going to go well in your life if this is a behavior that continues the rest of your life. Like, I know, but they took my toy. And now we just say things like, I hate you, I hate my family, I hate them. And you're just like, yeah, I don't know that that's healthy at all. <laughs> and, I'm just, I'm, and what happens is you're, as, as you get a little bit older, you realize, I, I don't want to live that way. But there's this really deep part of you that does, that chooses to not do the right thing, but regularly do the wrong thing. He says, verse 16, now I do not do what I want. I agree with the law that the law is good. And if I, I'm just saying, I, I have this internal despair. And what we want is actually to sanctify ourselves. Meaning, we want to make ourselves right with God. Once we believe in Jesus, now we say, now I can make myself perfect with God. I, if I know the right thing to do, surely I will then do it. All I need is the right information and I'll make the right decisions. And Paul says, actually, no. On your own, you don't have the power to do that. And so the third thing that the law does is this. It creates a war on the flesh. It reveals what's in the flesh 
and it makes you struggle internally. The Christian is actually living in an internal world at war. He says it this way. So it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And he almost like takes sin apart. He's like, if I could take that bad desire in me, that fleshly, it's like it's, like it's here. And it's like, I want to follow God. Yet this whole other thing is right here pulling me to not follow God. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells within me. He's saying, I have this very real struggle. And I'm almost like taking the parts of me apart. Have you ever done that? Like, I want to do what's wrong and evil. And why are those thoughts like circling in my head? And then I want to follow the Lord. I have the desire to do that. But, but I almost find myself in this struggle. I don't feel like I have the ability to do what I want. Well, which one do I want? Paul says, I actually want both. The Christian has this very real internal struggle. He says, so I find it a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in its members. He says, I've got this internal war inside of me. And for some of you, that is a struggle. You're like, I thought becoming a Christian would make all of this easier. And Paul is saying, no, it just got harder. Martin Luther says it this way. Very helpful. Therefore, God aims to accomplish nothing through the law more than that we should in this way be forced to acknowledge our inability, frailty, and disease. And that with our best efforts, we are unable to fulfill a letter of the law. When you realize this, the law has accomplished its work. This is what Paul means when he says in Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. He says the law, the purpose of the law is to reveal that we can't save ourselves and we cannot sanctify ourselves. We cannot make ourselves holy and we cannot change the human heart. When Hiru Inoda was, was waging this one-man war, what was interesting is that he became a bit of a, a folklore um, with a lot of Japanese people. And so there's one individual that heard about him and he wanted to go visit him. And so finally he flew over in the 70s and went and visited um, Hiru Okinawa as he's, as he's waging this war. And he's, he actually gets an audience with him. He starts talking with him. And he says to him, okay, why are you continuing to do this? And he says, well, I've been, I'm going for so long. I haven't believed any of those other people that have told me that the war is over. And so the person then asks, okay, what would actually cause you to stop fighting this war? And he says, if my superior officer came here in person and told me my service was ended, I would then lay down my arms. And so they went and found his superior officer who was like selling paper or something like that. Like he's just out of the military completely because it's been 29 years. And, and they went and found him and flew him in. And that picture I showed you at the beginning was the moment when his superior officer said, so you are relieved of command when he finally laid down his weapons. 
That moment is where Paul came to in this passage. He says, I've been fighting with my flesh to try to stop it, to try to stop this war and try to overpower those sin desires. And for some of you, that's where you are. You're like, I'm trying to white knuckle, will myself into obedience to make myself holy. And you're fighting this war consistently and having more defeats than wins. And you may be asking yourself, okay, Kevin, what's the solution? What is the Christian life? Is it just this perpetual struggle where I constantly lose? Is that the future? And he says, no, there's actually one hope. See, the law shows us the reality of our brokenness, that we are not who we want And need to be. And Paul brings up this conclusion. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks to be God through Christ Jesus our Lord. See we have one hope and it's the person of Jesus Christ. Not only for your salvation. For some of you you got to hear that this morning. Jesus died in your place for your sins, covering every wrong you've ever done or ever will do. He has fully forgiven you to bring you in right relationship with the Father. But the second step is this, that we actually submit to Jesus regularly for him to continue to sanctify us, to make us holy. After he saved you, he's not done working through you. So I'm going to give you some questions to think about in a closing illustration. Do you pray for God to move or do we push? When you're preparing for your exams, do you pray for God to move or do you white knuckle and push? When you're leading your Bible studies, do you pray for God to change the hearts of men or do you push? When you're battling with internal sin, do you pray for God to to sanctify you from the inside out or do you just push? Paul says, wretched man that I am, I can't will myself into obedience. Thanks be to Christ Jesus. Secondly, do we spend time cultivating our relationship with Jesus so that he can change our hearts and minds? Do you actually spend intentional time with Jesus where you say, Lord, I want what's wrong. I actually admit it. I lust here. I get angry here. I covet here. I I have these things. Jesus, will you change my heart? Opening his word to change you from the inside out. And thirdly, are we trying to sanctify ourselves, make ourselves holy? That's what that means, to make ourselves holy, not realizing it's Jesus alone who changed us by his power. When I was a kid, um, my dad would mow the lawn. And uh, I remember as a kid, I was like, I want to mow the lawn. Because that was the, the sign of true manhood. You know, his dad did it. And he was out there pushing it in his cutoff shorts. So I'm just giving you some reality. And, uh, and so he's pushing it around. And, and, uh, and I'm like, Dad, I want to do it. And I was probably like, I don't know, like five or six years old. And, and he goes, okay, come on over here. And uh, he didn't turn it on. He just like stood right there. He's like, see if you can push it. And it was just a push mower. It wasn't like the automatic mower. So it makes sense. And so I get behind it. I'm like. And he's like, you got it, buddy? I'm like, I, I think I moved it. You know. And I'm like just straining. I'm going nowhere. And he goes, hey, bud, you, you actually want to mow the lawn? I'm like, so I'm here, dude. I'm going to do it. And he gets behind me. 
puts his big old arms on the mower and starts pushing and it starts moving and I'm there on that lower bar going like that's what I'm talking about you know like I I feel like I'm moving forward but it was the strength of the father that moved the direction we needed to go it is the strength of God the father through the person of the son and the empowerment of the spirit that is going to move your life in the direction you should go if we get anything from Romans 7, it's this. I'm wretched, but thanks be to Christ Jesus who has saved me and is empowering me to live the life he's calling me to live. Have you rested in him? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you for the profound and yet simple truth of your word. That we are not, the war still wages in all of us. That you didn't remove the struggle. But you have given us a way. So Lord, I pray for each person here as we go out through this week. We might consider how is it that we can really rest in you. To empower us to follow you. And not that we would white knuckle our way into obedience. But we would spend time cultivating our relationship with you that you might give us the strength through the struggle. And Lord, if there's someone here that's not put their faith wholly and solely in you for the forgiveness of their sins, Jesus, I pray that today would be the day and that they would confess that to one of their table leaders as we transition. I pray for that conversation, that it would go smooth and that we would be open to honest about the real struggles within. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you're a table host, you can head on out to get your table ready. rest of us, let's respond in worship together. Stand together. Let's keep worshiping together.